Okay, good evening. Welcome to Welcome back to Evening Dhamma. Tonight we are Tonight we're going to skip ahead to mindfulness of feelings. There's a few more sections in mindfulness of the body, but they're not they're more related to samatha meditation. They're useful, but uh, they're not immediately related to our mindfulness practice. So I'm just going to stay on track and go through those parts that are directly related to vipassana. It's nothing against the other parts. It's just for the purpose of our practice we're not well if you if you're interested in those other practices mindfulness of loathsomeness of the body um, mindfulness of the elements and mindfulness of the cemetery contemplation of a dead body you're welcome to look them up quite interesting we're moving on to feelings So we've talked about the body Quite simply Talking about being mindful of the Experiences The physical aspects of experience With Vedana, with feelings We move on to the mind Something that's mental The body doesn't have feelings Feelings aren't physical Let's be clear, the body is not something that exists So when we talk about the physical We're referring to uh, a, a specific aspect of experience Or certain experiences That uh, involves stiffness and hardness And heat and cold and that kind of thing A very limited uh, set of realities is the physical so Vedana, feeling is something that involves the mind It's a taste of the experience It's what the mind gets from the experience Sometimes it's pleasure, sometimes it's pain And sometimes it's uh, neither pleasure nor pain Neutral feelings And the commentary says something about neutral feelings How They're not easy to uh, to To Discern To be mindful of Because there's, it's, it's not It's not anything really And it says But you discern them because At the time of a neutral feeling There is no pleasure and there is no pain That's why the Buddha called neutral feelings Often Adukamasukang, not not happiness and not suffering. It's defined by what it's not. And because there's neither pleasure nor pain there, well, that's what we mean by a neutral feeling. At that time, there is what one would call a neutral feeling. Upekavidana. So the text is quite simple, the Buddha says 
when experiencing a happy feeling, one knows I am experiencing a happy feeling. However you go about that. Go about doing that. Uh, when experiencing a suffering feeling, one knows I am experiencing a suffering feeling, painful feeling. When experiencing neither a pleasant nor painful feeling, one knows I am experiencing a neither pleasant nor painful feeling. I mean, it sounds kind of simplistic, right? And the commentary makes clear we're not just talking about the way a baby knows when when it's. Uh, Taking milk from its mother Baby knows it's happy But that kind of, hap that kind of knowledge uh, Involves self It involves possession It's uh, defiled It's a knowledge that is not Clear knowledge It's not clear sampajanya It's not full and complete awareness It's awareness that prefaces a judgment, a reaction, a attachment. So mindfulness doesn't change our experiences, it just changes our reactions to them, right? It, it prevents the reaction to the feeling. And this is important. Feeling is, is a, uh, it plays a huge part in Buddhism. It's all, the Buddha gave whole suttas just on feeling, on Vedana. Because Vedana is the bait. Vedana is the last uh, moment, or the last, the last bastion. I don't know. It's the last defense. It's the line. Vedana is still neutral. You, if you experience a pleasant feeling, it's not a bad or a good thing. If you experience a painful feeling, also not a wholesome or unwholesome thing. These are not good or evil. There's nothing evil about pleasure. There's nothing evil about pain. And likewise, there's nothing good or evil about either. There's nothing good about either. That's what happens the next moment. Vedana is the, is the bait that catches us up. And so the next thing the Buddha says in this section, he talks about an uh, um, uh, samisa and niramisa when experiencing a, a something that is samisa and something that is niramisa amisa is like the carnal or the, the worldly or the, the corporeal coarse physical uh, niramisa is immaterial spiritual it's translated as but they're just opposite. So samisa refers, I think, to uh, defiled happiness, and this is because this is important to the Buddha in in regards to understanding that vedana isn't the problem. You come to see that vedana can exist with defilement and without defilement. If it's with defilement, it involves desires and aversions, right? Painful feeling is associated with disliking of the pain. So there's physical and mental discomfort. Uh, pleasure is associated with desire. So there's a wish for an increase and an attachment, an addiction to the pleasure. 
but the pleasure and the pain themselves are 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 not the problem and you you're able to see that see the difference but the difference has nothing to do with the feeling and you start to see that your mind starts to grasp that feeling isn't really the the issue at all because most of our lives is based around this issue of feeling what do we do in our lives we try to we try our best to chase after certain types of feelings that's what it comes down to everything ends up being a drug addiction to the chemicals in our brain that can give us happiness and give us pleasure and run away and chase away and live in, in abject fear of painful feelings and or with neutral feelings be attached to them or be ad uh, identified with them or that kind of thing we're very much caught up in our reactions to feelings how we uh, what sort of feelings come to us we're, we're quite particular about them and so we think that feeling is the issue this is uh, when we talk about suffering most people see suffering as in terms of feelings Suffering, suffering is a specific type of feeling and if I can just avoid that feeling that's happiness and it's, un, it's problematic of course because you can't avoid any sort of feeling feelings are not under your control they're not where the freedom comes freedom doesn't come from freedom from feelings it's not possible. You can't guarantee absence of certain types of feelings. We're not in control of reality. Even if we were, our control would never be permanent. The commentary brings up a an interesting sutta, the the Vedana Parigaha Sutta, which is a or Diganaka Sutta. It's a sutta. It's the sutta that allowed Sariputta to become enlightened and it brings up an, another interesting issue in regards to Vedana or in regards to all of this when we talk about knowing um, a big part of it is knowing impermanence is knowing that uh, I mean when we talk about knowing when, when experiencing a pleasant feeling I'm experiencing a pleasant feeling is knowing that at that moment there's only the pleasant feeling and the painful feeling from before is gone and, no, and coming to see that all of our feelings, all of our experiences are, are momentary and to see that there is no me or mine and there's no I that carries on from moment to moment because when you see that it becomes a simple matter of, of experiences it's no longer objects of desire it's no longer attachment or possession there's nothing to possess when when experiences arise and cease all of the baggage that comes after feeling that has nothing to do with feeling but is caused by our reaction to feeling all of that is washed away 
when you're able to see feeling as feeling whether it's pleasant or painful coming to see that painful feeling isn't the pro painful feelings aren't the problem the problem is that we don't like the painful feelings that's great liberation i mean that's really one of the classic ways one becomes enlightened is through uh, changing from from uh, fighting with the pain to standing with the pain, staying with the pain, experiencing the pain without the defilement, without the baggage, and being able to see the difference that had nothing to do with the pain at all. That wasn't the problem. Realizing that the problem was never the pain, and realizing that pain is never a problem is such a liberation. I mean, to see that the problem is that we want certain types of happiness and certain types of feeling. So, it's quite a short section, but um, always good to remember how important Vedana is for becoming enlightened. It's, these are very simple teachings, but uh, we're dealing with very strong medicine. And when you take this medicine, it does great, makes great change brings about great change to your mind, to your life, to, to your existence. It frees you from so much. So, there you go. There's our little bit of Dhamma for tonight. Contemplation of feeling. Of course, when we practice, we just say feeling, feeling. Or, well, we say happy, happy, or pain, pain. You don't have to go all out. The Buddha here, I don't think is talking about an actual practice. I don't think you would actually sit there and say, I am experiencing a happy feeling, I am experiencing a happy feeling. The point is, what can you do to, to know that you're experiencing a happy feeling? It's not a mantra in the sense that you just repeat it blindly to yourself. It's a mantra in the sense that it reminds you. It, it brings about that awareness. Now I'm experiencing a happy feeling. So by saying to yourself, happy, happy, that's the experience that comes. Okay, so there you go. Let's look and see if there are questions. Three questions tonight, looks like. I'm overwhelmed with the information I'm reading and I'm finding it difficult to see the path I should take in my meditation practice. There's vipassana, samatha, jhanas, loving-kindness, hindrances, fetters, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity, etc. I don't know where to start, what to focus on, when to move on, etc. Do you have any guidance for that besides obtaining a teacher? Are your two meditation books on your website enough or do they just outline meditation in the beginning stage and one should look elsewhere? Right, so the second booklet is actually more for people who have done a course um, and so the first booklet just gives the very uh, very first step in undertaking a meditation course. I wouldn't go, okay I've read the first book, done what it says, now the next thing to do is read the second book. I would, after reading the first book you should try and make time to do a meditation course. And once you've done that, then you can start to read the second book. I mean, there's not that much in the second book, but it's more useful when it's um, 
accompanying actual intensive practice and progress. So all those other types of meditation, I mean, yes, Buddhism, as you're starting to see, is a big thing. Um, even Theravada Buddhism is a very big thing, but beyond that there are other kinds of Buddhism. But even in Theravada Buddhism there are, um, even in the orthodoxy, what, what people like me would consider actually kosher and not heretic or radical, um, it's, it's quite diverse. If you read the Visuddhimagga, which is a, you know, a huge book, you start to see how complex it all is. Um, so there's a lot of attempts to boil it down to something manageable, and I think our tradition does that. It makes it quite manageable and offers it in a way that is probably the most manageable, the least amount of baggage or complication. So ultimately I would say mindfulness is, is where you start and end. You don't have to go anywhere else. Everything else is sort of uh, ancillary. Useful in certain cases, but not always useful. Mindfulness is the only thing that is always useful. So it should guide your practice and help you to see what you need. If it shows you that you're very angry, then maybe because you see that through mindfulness, then you start to practice loving-kindness, for example. Mindfulness should show you, in, you know, what sort of things might help. Uh, but mindfulness is ultimately the, the the main practice. If we concentrate on the breath in the same way we concentrate on a distracting thought as it arises until it disappears, why would one object go away and not the other? Well, everything goes away. I mean, the the, the breath does go away. It arises and ceases, arises and ceases. The rising arises and ceases, the falling arises and ceases. Same with thoughts, thoughts arise and cease. I'm not sure if I'm really understanding your question, but um, it's not about things going away, everything goes away. We're just trying to see that. We're trying to see things arising and ceasing. Arise. Because then it starts to show that, well, there's really nothing particular that we should be clinging to over anything else. Why be partial to certain states over others when everything is just coming and going? It's quite a simple truth, but um, it's very profound in its implications because it teaches us to let go and to stop trying to force things or cling to things. I understand one should separate anxiety from feeling that anxiety produces. Anxiety, anxiety and subsequently observe the feelings. You say feelings aren't actually bad and we should observe them objectively. I disagree. <laughs> Those feelings produce a shaky voice and inhibit communication. One phrases, ah, yes. This is interesting. I've talked about this before. You may say that it's the anxious thoughts that create this feelings, not the feelings themselves, but even if that's the case, the feelings are still noticeable by those you interact with. They affect the interaction as people see you sweating, blushing, shaky voice, poor communication, and become uncomfortable speaking with you. Since these interactions are affected, your relationships are affected. How are these feelings then not a problem? Can one get rid of them? If so, what are the general stages? It was a good, well said. Um, but let's be clear here. What is giving rise to those feelings? You 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 agree? Okay, it's the um, it's the ang anxiety. If you weren't anxious, you wouldn't have the trembling and so on. So that shows to you that. Anxiety is a problem. 
you know I'm suppose you're very cold and you're shivering and 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 you start to talk and you're shivering no one's gonna say ha ah, look at that per look at that person he's so useless he's shivering I mean it's uncon because you'll say well it's nothing to do with me it's not like I was anxious and then I'm shivering right so the physical experiences are only a problem because they manifest your mind, your your anxiety to others, and it's embarrassing. Um, but the point is, and and the most important point from a practical perspective, is that once you experience these sensations, which are actually neutral, they're neutral in the sense that they are not going to, they are not going to um, lead to more shaky feelings. They are not going to lead to more suffering. Let's be clear here. You have the anxiety, it leads to suffering. Why? Because you start shaking and people can say, look at that guy, he's anxious. And that's very embarrassing and affects your relationships and makes people annoyed and, and look down upon you and so on. But it's because of the anxiety. You don't have to say, oh, if only I didn't have those feelings. Why? So you could hide your anxiety? That wouldn't be the, the answer the answer is not to get anxious in the first place and if you weren't anxious the feelings wouldn't arise the feelings themselves don't lead to more feelings and that's what you have to see is that once you're experiencing these feelings the answer the solution is to be mindful of them is to not say how can I get rid of these feelings because that involves anxiety and that's what happens we have the feelings and we think Oh, these are feelings are a problem, and that makes us anxious, and it becomes a loop, because then they get worse, right? You feed into your emotion. You're experiencing anxiety, leads to these feelings. The feelings feed your anxiety, and so on, and so on, and so on. If you can catch the feelings and be mindful of them, I've done that. You know, I used to be very anxious when I got up to give talks. I've been giving talks now. I started giving meditation talks just because I thought, well, this is a useful skill to learn. I was, um, I don't know, it's 2004 or five or something like that. And some of them were awful. And then I started you know, getting better at it and people started inviting me places and I'd have big audiences and sometimes I was shaking, you know. And so I looked at this and I you know, applied mindfulness to it and I started to see it's quite remarkable. You can be sitting there shaking and yet people are aware that you're a little bit shaky, but you're so full of confidence and you're so sure of yourself, even though your voice is shaking. It's such a wonderful feeling and people are quite impressed, actually. And it shows you that uh, mindfulness really does solve everything. It really is this solvent that removes the poison because if you're mindful of your nervous reactions it somehow changes the experience and like magic almost you're you're, you're not um, you know, I mean people can tell that you're 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 shaking and they can see that oh, this person was anxious but they can also see now that this person has a very strong handle on their their experience and they are clear and alert and not anxious if you can separate the physical and mental like that it's such a power so I hope that 
makes sense, but I think you really have to put it into practice and be clear. That's a very important part of the solution is to learn to see that the feelings aren't the problem. Because when you do, then you stop reacting to them. You stop letting them get you anxious, make you more anxious. Oh no, now I'm having these feelings. What are people going to think? Right? That's the that's the the wrong path. How do we cope with loved ones dying? Well, loved ones means you're attached to them, and attachment is caused by ignorance and delusion, unfortunately. Um, so learning to just love them and not have attachment to them We're like ships passing in the night We, uh, we can't We didn't invite people We didn't invite these loved ones into our lives They just came And they didn't ask our permission when they leave When they die They just go And that's That'll always be how it happens And until we learn that and, and come to terms with it We'll always cry, we'll always suffer A lifetime after lifetime after lifetime In the same old way Because of these attachments So, short answer, mindfulness If you become mindful you'll start to free yourself from those attachments and see the difference between love and attachment They're not the same thing Or there are two different things that You can call them both love if you want But it's not very useful It's more useful to think of love as something separate from attachment Okay, and that's the questions for tonight Thank you all for tuning in.